By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lots of you have expressed that you'd like to work with me, Adam Young, on your games. I've decided to launch an eight-week course where I'll personally be taking you step-by-step through a program of improvement. You'll get better at everything from ground contact, face contact, direction, speed, and even topics like how to practice more effectively and how to prepare for tournaments. We'll have skill drills, technique drills, as well as building your golf IQ so you can better coach yourself. Members of the eight-week course will get to ask me questions in the group and have me personally answer them for you. I'll be in the group multiple times a day. And the course will run, it'll start on July the 10th, 2022, and run through to the end of August. So if this sounds interesting to you or you want to learn more about it, go to www.adamyounggolf.com forward slash eight dash week dash course that's eight dash week dash course welcome back to another episode of the sweet spot this is john sherman from practical golf and as always i'm joined by adam from adam young golf this episode of the sweet spot is brought to you by our friends at the indoor golf shop they're the place to go online for setting up a simulator in your home or your business they've got all the major brands of launch monitors like foresight skytrack unicor and flight scope and they make enclosures screens hitting mats pretty much anything you're going to need for your indoor studio if you need help you can give them a call directly talk to their experts you can ask for gerald or hunter i know they've helped plenty of other sweet spot listeners and they can help you decide what's going to fit in your garage media room and basement based on your budget and technology requirements so thanks for their support and you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com so today we have two guests on the show we've got 
Marty Jertsen from Ping making a, a return to the sweet spot, a triumphant return. And we've got Chris Brody. What's up, guys? Oh, doing great. Doing great. Happy to be on. And both Chris and I have, you know, scratched the itch on uh, our topic we're going to be talking about today. So we're pretty excited about uh, our chat here. Yeah. Nice. Excited to be on. So Marty, you were actually the first guest we've ever had on. Now you're a repeat guest. I know that's an honor you must hold. Maybe more dear than your top 2000 official world golf (laughs) ranking. So if people remember, Marty was on talking a little bit about Ping's research on club fitting. He's the VP of fitting and performance at Ping, also the co-founder of the Stack System. We've had your partner, Sasha McKenzie, on the show. His, His episode will be coming out probably sometime around this one. So let's hear about you, Chris. What do you do for Ping? Uh, my official title is Head of Fitting Science, and I get to work on a whole host of fitting projects. So WebFit is our online fitting algorithm. We have our ball fitting tool. So I get to dive into the science behind golf ball performance and then get to work on a lot more performance initiatives w- within our engineering department. So anything that I can apply data on and golf, it's a pretty fun combination for me. And it ties into my math background that I math major in college. So it's been a lot of fun work with Marty and trying to uncover as many fitting topics that we can. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I've learned from both of you guys on your site, the articles you've written have been super helpful for my research and stuff I do on practical golf, even on this show. So yeah, you guys, Ping's been very forthcoming with their research, which is helpful to golfers. So we're happy to have you guys on and help share that. And, and Marty, last time we had you on, you were kind of alluding to the Ballnamic project, but uh, you couldn't say anything officially. But now the site's out. You can do a ball fitting on there. I know people are very interested in what makes golf balls different. We're going to do that on a separate episode in the future because we want to cover, I guess I was calling them the big four before we started recording. We're going to be talking about wind, temperature, altitude, and humidity and how they alter ball flight. There's just been so many myths <laughs> thrown around over the years, whether, you know, what you watch on TV broadcasts or or stuff people just say to each other on the golf course. So we're going to dive into each of these separately. And, you know, hopefully I think this could save people a lot of strokes. So I'm, I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, definitely. And I think on the golf ball fitting side, this episode and the topics today can act as a kind of a foundational piece for our next chat we have about golf balls, because it's all using a lot of the same research and modeling and empirical testing kind of go into, you know, the four topics we're going to talk about today. Sweet. So let's start with the most influential one to scoring, or at least I think so. Let's talk about wind. I play in windy conditions. Adam grew up playing in windy conditions. Is it is it windy in Vegas, Adam? Yeah, it is actually. Oh, it is. Very windy. Okay. All right, so you're still playing in windy conditions. I know you guys have a ton of data on wind, what it does to the golf ball. What do you think is some of the most, like, let's start with like some of the, the big takeaways that, that you guys have figured out through your research. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll kind of put my, give my background on the motivation for us trying to crack wind is basically, I looked at wind very much like aim point and green reading. Like there's gotta be like a physics based approach we can take to crack this thing. <laughs> now, you know, the wind is not blowing constant speed and the, you know, it's kind of complicated and it might change based on how the elevation you are from the surface up into the trees could change. There's things like the canopy effect, which, you know, there's been research done on like 12 
12 at Augusta. Why is that hole so crazy from a wind standpoint? And so the wind is still kind of, there's a little bit of mystery to it and how to use on the course. But I think what we've done, Chris and I have both done is help kind of crack the code on providing a physics-based solution to wind. And I've even made some of these little scorecards or, you know, cheat sheets for myself, so to speak, to help calculate the impact of wind. Chris can weigh in here. I think some of the big things on wind are that it's the impact of the wind on your ball flight. So how far it changes your carry distance and your height and your curve is highly dependent on your ball speed and your trajectory. And so when we talk about wind, it's tough to apply this blanket thing like a 10 mile an hour wind is going to carry 15 more yards. It's very specific to your ball speed and how high you hit it. Chris, I don't know if you want to go into some specifics there. but Yeah, we've done a whole wide range of simulations. So coming up with cheat sheets for Marty, so you can go to a, a tournament and say, I'm playing a 10 mile per hour headwind. How much does this hurt my seven iron or four iron or driver? And then we've also done these cheat sheets for LPGA Tour players. And there are some things we've seen where a foreign downwind, you can actually lose some distance if you are a low enough speed, low enough launch, low enough spin. And so that really goes into how important trajectory is and how many factors there are into understanding that wind-ball flight relationship. I remember a specific time as a junior where it was straight downwind. It was blowing so hard and we were expecting to hit these bombs down there and you just saw it just drop out of the air and and go our normal distance and we were all kind of baffled by it but yeah it, it makes sense thinking back to that scenario yeah Adam, so just to kind of expand on that one a little bit so yeah if you're hit your driver say 220 yards or less what we've seen in our modeling and i think this is what you've experienced there when you're a junior right is that if you have a helping wind of about 10 miles an hour or more after it gets over 10 miles an hour, it's pretty much not going to help your carry distance. Obviously, it's going to change your peak height. You might roll out further, etc. But if you're like medium speed or slower, 10 miles an hour or more is pretty much not going to hurt your carry. And in some conditions like mid irons, long irons, if you're a long iron player, it can start hurting your carry. So I think like a practical example is like maybe you're, a, you know, you're 170 yards from the green, you got like tons of room to miss long and you got water short and you're going to be like, the wind's helping me here and I'm going to hit my seven irons going to definitely carry, but I'm a little worried about going short. I'd much rather miss long. The penalty's not, you know, maybe the green's deep. I'm going to hit a six iron instead. You go down to a six iron, you might actually carry it shorter. <laughs> and hit it into the water. And so that's one of the unique phenomena that can occur. But again, that's kind of for the medium and slow speeds, like at my speed or PGA Tour average speed and trajectory, downwind, you still continue to get increases in carry distance as that speed goes up. Obviously, you get to 40 miles an hour or whatever, then it starts to level out. But it's very speed and, and trajectory specific on, you know, and that, that's one of the unique things we found on the carry distance side, downwind. Is it fair to say, it sounds like there's so many caveats here, so I'll be careful with my words, but like just anecdotally playing golf in the wind all these years and looking at some of Ping's research, it seems to indicate this, that hitting into the wind changes distance more than hitting with it. So if I was into a 20 mile per hour wind, I need to take way more club, and I think this is a mistake that most recreational golfers make is that they're not taking enough club hitting into the wind versus if it's behind me, 
there's no way I'm going to, let's say I, I, I'm into a two or three club win that that might turn my 160 yard shot into 120 or 130 yard shot. But let's say I had that same tailwind. There's no way I'm going to hit it 30 or 40 yards more. Is that a fair statement that a hurting wind will hurt more than a helping wind will help? Yeah, we've been looking at, again, trajectory dependent, but for maybe PJ Tour speeds for someone like Marty, it's about 1.5 to 1. So let's say in a 10 mile an hour wind, you're going to see the shot play 15 yards longer. 10 mile an hour tailwind, it might only be 10 yards of help. And then it varies by player. So I think if you go a little bit slower, it might even be 2 to 1, where you're going to get a 20 yard of hurt and only a 10 yard of help. So yeah, definitely into the wind is a much bigger factor for distance. Yeah, I think going with like, if we want to create a a general rule, and again, that's kind of where this topic gets, okay, how much in the weeds versus how much of a general rule, like if you're medium, slow speeds, you know, that's where and not the highest trajectory, that's where that ratio is about two to one, where it's going to hurt you about twice as much into the wind, then then it will help you on downwind. But if you're PGA Tour, trajectories and speeds and higher speeds it's not two to one it's it's closer to you know between 1.3 and 1.5 to one in terms of that ratio of how much it's going to hurt you but it definitely hurts you on into the wind more than help you john in, in all cases and is that because their ball speed is just so high that the wind's just not gonna influence it as much is, is that one of the determining factors for the tour level performance? I think it's that what kind of what we talked about before this, which is that the carry won't keep helping you, right? For the downwind, for the downwind scenario, you kind of peak out. But if you if you have a, enough speed to kind of maintain, get that ball in the air and you continue to gain on those downwind shots. And I think that's probably the primary reason why that ratio changes from uh, kind of medium slow speeds to high speeds and high trajectories. And without trying to get too much in the weeds, does that change with wind speed as well? Does that ratio ratio change with wind speed? So I could imagine that when it gets really blowing hard, those high speed players might see things get closer together. Or am I wrong there? Am I completely reversed? I wish I had a little more data in front of me right now, but I think definitely at, at high winds, high speed players, things get pretty crazy with how much of an effect wind can have. So I think we were out, I was counting for Marty at the, at the Monday qualifier for the Phoenix Open, and we were playing pretty significant 10 to 15 mile an hour winds, and it was a 15 to possibly 30 yard hurt going into the wind. And so I think, may not be answering your question perfectly, but that high speed, high wind scenario can really have quite a drastic effect on your carry distance. Thinking about the types of players who listen to this show and how we could help them make better decisions with the wind. Like I think hitting into the wind is the scenario that causes the most issue. I I mean, 15 miles an hour is, you know, a calm day for me where I play. And I think I've adjusted to launching it lower with less spin over time just because that that's helped me fight through it more where in terms of distance preservation is that the answer launching it lower with less spin which in in most instances would just be someone taking more club like i'm not someone who i don't love someone going out on the golf course with like four different shots like i I think most recreational players 
don't even need to play quote unquote a punch shot. I don't play a punch shot because I feel like I'll screw it up more times than it'll be worth. The recommendation I've given to most people is like, you just take a lot more club because that kind of accomplishes, you know, with less loft, you're launching it lower with less spin. Is it, is it that simple or is there, is there more nuance to it? Yeah, John, I've wondered that question myself. I've tried to simplify golf myself. Like, okay, how do I simplify this? I went out and tested for me hitting just one trajectory lower. So let's say, okay, I'm not going to have three different, four different windows I'm going to choose from. I'm just going to have one kind of shot where I choke up a little, stand a little closer, you know, kind of get more pressure in my left foot during the transition and boom, I'm going to hit it one window lower. And when I do that, my trajectory is affected by the wind about two thirds of what it would be normally. So let's say I have a 15 mile an hour hurting wind and I'm at 190 yards. Normally that would hurt me like 30 yards. So if I hit a lower trajectory, that's only going to hurt my ball flight by 20 yards. I just use this two thirds rule from our ball fly modeling. So but I think you're right. I think for the everyday player, just don't even don't even try to hit it lower. Just know that just take that full effect of what that wind's going to be for you. And then you also have to factor in if it's going to gust and then strategy. Like, you know, if you can't miss short and then, you know, if the wind's blowing and it's it's gusty, you might get a gust that's going to impact you even more. So that's where it's you know, the impact of wind on strategy is certainly a topic we could get into, especially when it comes to dispersion, like, you know, downwind into the wind, what's going to happen on that front? Well, that you're leading me into my next thought, because anecdotally, as someone who struggles with putting too much side spin on the ball at times, I've noticed that hitting into the wind I think, you know, playing in the wind is like the greatest training aid ever. It just exposes all of your weaknesses as a, as a ball striker. And if you can't control the backspin and sidespin of your ball, it gets exaggerated. And I've found, you know, if I'm playing more of a hook shot into the wind, well, this thing might curve 50 yards if I don't keep it under control versus if it was downwind, it will not curve as much. So, Chris, you had tweeted something about this that kind of blew my mind. Can we talk a little bit about curvature and dispersion left to right with wind as well, because that's super important in addition to the distance control element. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to approach it. Sasha actually had a really good question for us. We were talking about downwind, you're going to have a tire dispersion. And so Sasha said, what's better, a six iron into the wind or an eight iron downwind? What do the winds have to be to even those shots up? And then what would the comparison in dispersions be? And so it ended up being that for let's say PJ Tour speeds, you're going to hit your six iron 200, eight iron 170, an eight mile per hour wind would even out those two clubs. So the six iron into an eight mile per hour wind, eight iron, eight miles per hour downwind that now carry the same distance, but that eight iron is coming through a much tighter window, mainly because the wind behind it is tightening up the dispersion, any into the wind, as you said, that side spin kind of blows up and it gets much wider left, right dispersion. The sneaky thing that I didn't expect was that you'll actually have a slightly larger front back dispersion with that eight iron. So the, the tailwind does sort of amplify a little bit of your carry distance. But the number one factor is that into the wind blows up your left right dispersion. It'll be a much harder shot on the course for sure. I've had to learn that lesson very, very, very painfully <laughs> over the years. I think a lot of it has to do with it exposes, like, we're always talking about impact stuff on here. But, like, yeah, I just had to get better control of the face and the path of the club. Like, Adam, are you surprised by that at all? 
No, I mean, the obvious one to me is downwind. If you, if you think of it kind of funneling off or going off in different directions and the wind's behind you, that's going to kind of push it and funnel it towards the middle. You could obviously just reverse that logic and say, therefore, into the wind is probably going to be more spread out. But I didn't realize the reason until, is it Bernoulli's effect or something like that? Just how it, I, I don't know the exact reason why, but I know it's to do with how spin and turbulence on the ball sends it more offline, something like that. You're probably laughing at me now on my lack of, <laughs> lack of yeah, no, knowledge. Like but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just experience it, right? You just experience it. I mean, the thing that stands out to me as a, as a memory as a junior was the first time I played into proper wind. And it was, I remember the scenario. It was on the range. It was blowing straight into me. It was too windy to go out on the golf course. So we went and practiced. And I hit that shot and I saw this ball stay in the air forever. And I thought, that is going miles. That's just hanging in the air forever. And then it dropped down about 100 yards shorter. I was like, what is going on there? So that's more of a distance dispersion thing. But yeah, I can remember it being, you know, more left and right as well when it's into the wind. It's, as you said, it's a good drill to do because it kind of highlights any errors that you are making. Yeah, we've thrown some numbers around that too, like quantified it. So, and this is kind of like combining some modeling. So taking some, you know, we'll feed in impact, you know, face to path variance from our 3D motion capture system. Then we'll tie it to our ball model and kind of simulate the flight and then look at, okay, someone's dispersion. That's kind of how we get some of these rules. And what we found is you get about 7% tighter dispersion downwind for every 10 miles an hour of help, right? So if you're a golfer that's using some rules, like I need a 50 yard wide fairway to green light hitting driver without a penalty, right? Or something like that. And if the wind's helping 20 miles an hour, or 30 miles an hour, your dispersion, you can pretty much count on it being at least 20% tighter, right? So then that 50-yard target now goes down to 40. I've used this for like drivable par fours. Like let's say it's a desert golf here in Arizona and it's like desert everywhere and you're going to hit in a cactus, maybe that one out of 10 shot or whatever that might go in there. But if it's if the wind's helping just 10 to 15 miles an hour, I will play much more aggressively and you, you can get quantitative on that if you're that type of player that's getting into the size of targets. And then certainly, but certainly the opposite's true. If you got that 50 yard wide target and if you're into even a 10 mile an hour headwind, you might need to blow that up to, you know, closer to 60 to pull your green light if you're making those type of decisions. Yeah, you could get crazy with strokes gained if you wanted to with that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to think of the quote unquote average player. And I think, having general rules of thumb are helpful like what we're discussing into the wind is is kind of more penalizing to distance and it it will penalize the curvature of the ball more which again you know these are the things we talk about on the show a lot how do you fix those things and it's it's tightening these these things up i've had to do it I, i can't go into windy conditions playing this huge hook it just creates too wide as you if you said marty like hitting into the wind I just anecdotally figured out that the dispersion was just so wide. Like, I'm like, this is not playable. I need to figure out a way to neutralize this. You guys had tweeted out something that was interesting. Maybe we could touch on this before. I know we have other topics to get to. Maybe this will be the last topic. You guys had tweeted out that for a right-handed golfer, we generally experience a larger dispersion pattern in a right-to-left wind. What the heck is going on there? Yeah, this one shocked me. We were were doing some wind investigations and... Touching on what Marty said, we can dive into our impact model, our ball flight model, and 
throw in 20 representative seven iron shots, throwing a left to right wind, throwing a right to left wind, throwing a head wind, throwing a tailwind, just see how all those dispersions change. And I couldn't believe it. Like I would throw 10 mile per hour right to left wind and that carry dispersion would blow up and then a left to right wind, it would start to shrink. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I know in right to left winds, I'm so much more comfortable. I can just kind of leave it out to the right. I'll come back to the target. And then I had to think about, okay, what's happening on maybe the the left shots and the right shots that could cause this? So for an iron, that was kind of an important caveat that got left out of the tweet. But for an iron, your dispersion is going to be long left to short right. So if you open up the face, you'll have a little bit more loft. You get a tend to be a, a fade to the right. And then on a long left shot, you'll close the face, de-loft it, get a little bit less spin. And so if you think about those two shots with a right to left wind, that left to right, short right shot is always kind of going into the wind and it will end up going shorter. And the long left shot is always kind of getting pushed along by the wind and it will go longer. And so that's... Ah, that does make sense when you think about it. (laughs) That's the effect that's going on. And then, so there's a couple like interesting additions to that. When you go to a driver, this no longer applies. So a well-fit driver should have a no tilt to that dispersion pattern. Your left shot should go a similar distance to your right shot. And you can also think about why that is. So with the iron, it was you delivered less loft, it went further, and you delivered more loft and went shorter to the right. If you had a driver dispersion where the long left, that less loft went longer, you should just be playing less loft. And similarly, if you have a right shot with more loft that goes further, you should just be playing more loft. You should be playing the proper amount of loft so that your straight neutral shot goes the furthest. And so there's a kind of a fun way to analyze your driver loft fitting by looking at that dispersion tilt. If it's long left, decrease your loft a little bit. If it's long right, you can increase your loft a little bit. And that would help you play more consistently across all winds then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'm pretty sure we could spend two hours on wind alone, but unfortunately you guys don't have all afternoon to sit here with us. I do have one little question that can be quite important because it, it relates. Yeah. And here, com- and here comes Adam with the most complicated question ever. That's going to take 20 minutes to explain. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, it relates to, I mean, there's, there's always this argument in the industry of is a zero path and zero face more accurate. And I just thought that, you know, John says with his hook into the wind, he has to minimize it. Have you tested that? So gone into the wind and then had someone hit zero path, zero face, and then have another person or a robot hit plus six path, plus four face. So that would normally draw onto the target and then see which one has the bigger dispersion. Does it matter? Is zero path, zero face better in that regard? So the the one thing that comes to mind that we have looked at is whether it's better to play a right-to-left shot into a left-to-right wind, so you kind of neutralize your ball flight's curve, or do you want to ride the wind? Yep. And so it feels more scary. You know the riding the wind shot is going to curve a whole lot more. And the big thing is, as long as you properly aim, it doesn't change your dispersion a whole lot. You'll get a tiny bit more distance out of riding the wind because you're not you're not fighting the wind the entire time versus you're kind of fighting the wind the entire time if you curve it against the wind. But the dispersion doesn't change a whole lot. So I don't think there is a best scenario for optimizing your dispersion, but it's a little bit of what you're comfortable with. If you're riding that wind, the one thing to note is that ball is coming in somewhat sideways as it lands versus if you're curving it against the wind, it's going to land a whole lot straighter, which might be a little bit more practical 
to control that bounce and roll aspect. Perfect. Thanks. All right. That was actually an excellent question, Adam. I like that one. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to temperature because I think that's the one that potentially could have influence for numerous reasons. But at the same time, when I've looked at the research, it's like, oh, it doesn't seem to affect it that much. But what are the big takeaways on temperature, you know, for a golfer like myself who could play anywhere between, I think, 45 to 40 degrees is my cutoff. Usually I don't like going out there less than that. So I can play in 9,500 degree conditions and I'm sure plenty of people listening to this have that range as well. So what are the big takeaways on temperature? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think temp- when it comes to temperature, we kind of want to think about it. I think it might be helpful for the listeners to think about to think about it in three buckets. It's okay. One is when it's warmer, generally, you know, people can move faster, right? Or you're wearing less clothes, you have less friction between your moving parts on your body. So that's a factor when it's warmer. And that's a little bit different for everybody. And this kind of comes down to doing a proper warm up. But just in general, the person can move faster and swing the club faster. That's number one. Number two, the golf ball itself and a little bit maybe like the driver of the clubs might have a little more flexibility when it's warmer so that you could get more ball speed. If you have a warmer golf ball, if you warm up your golf ball, you're going to have more ball speed in the golf ball itself. That's the initial ball speed. And then number three is the temperature impact on the air in the flight. And so I think kind of, let's say the golf ball temperature and the club temperature is kind of, you know, relatively minor, then it's the the golfer swinging faster when it's warmer, and then the ball flying through the air when it's warmer will affect how far that golf ball goes. So at least, you know, maybe breaking it into those different buckets. I think the last week at the waste management here was an interesting scenario where, and I experienced this myself when I played two years ago. If you looked at the temperature, and the temperature is always the coldest, like right at sunrise here in the desert. So, you know, Adam, the same thing in Vegas. This time of year, 740 tea time, it's like the coldest time of day. And so it was like 40 degrees or 38 degrees last week during the waste management. And then by the time you get to 16, Pace play was kind of slow last week, four, four and a half hours later, it's 70 degrees. So the temperature changed 30 degrees between when you teed off and when you're on like the end of the back nine. Ignoring how much faster you might swing it yourself, your carry distance with your driver through your irons for a PJ Tour player would go up, you know, between five and seven yards during your round. Like you would hit your seven iron about seven yards further during your round from the time you teed off from the time you got to number 16. So that's not trivial. I mean, for most tour players, that's a half a club further in carry through the air temperature change alone. And then if you're swinging faster because you are warmer, that could be like a full club during one round. So, I mean, my instinct was always, it was the Again, thinking of the quote unquote normal golfer, the temperature had more to do with how fast their body was moving than the ball. Because if you take someone who's, let's say, hitting their seven iron 155 and the temperature changes 30 degrees from one day to another, is that like golf ball alone? Would that be safe to say it's a few yards of distance in that instance because they're not hitting it as far as a PGA Tour player? You'd probably be in the three to five yard range. Yeah. Three to five. Okay. So probably half a club for them as well. My instinct has been like the extra layers, the body not being warm, like they just can't move. That to me is like one of the things is and also like uh, to advocate a proper warm up before you play the extra layers and your body being cold. It's like you just can't move as fast. You can't apply as much swing speed. 
Yeah, absolutely. We have a fun data explorer we have at Ping because we do player testing year round. Obviously, in the winter here, it's, you know, like Vegas, like, you know, we'll do player testing here in the 50s degrees all the way up through the summer when it's approaching 120 or 115. And we can plot the same players' swing speeds relative to temperature. And you you get this really cool correlation of their, you know, seven iron driver swing speed relative to the ambient temperature. It's, it's pretty neat. I mean, it's pretty reliable and very predictable. We are going to take a quick break there and we'll be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. What about leaving your, this is another question I've gotten before, if the golf ball itself gets super cold, so let's say you were the golfer who left their clubs and bag in their car overnight and it got down to, you know, 35, 40 degrees at night. And then when they teed off, it was in the 60s. How much does the actual like temper, like, does it take a while for the ball to warm up or is that negligible? Like, how much does that play into it? Like, the, the temperature of the ball itself? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's definitely a noticeable factor. We've experienced this with our own pingman testing where we'll have our, golf balls sitting overnight and we think there's a small effect of the ball warming up as the sun starts to come in at in the morning that could add a mile up to three miles an hour of ball speed if you went from 40 degrees to 80 degrees so it's definitely a pretty significant factor it wouldn't hurt to put 
some hand warmers in your pocket if it's a freezing cold morning and get those balls a little bit warmer. I was just going to say that's what we used to do as a junior. Yeah, yeah, definitely bring your clubs in or at least your golf balls inside and don't leave them in your trunk on those cold days. That's a non-trivial impact. So I think, John, in summary, it's golfer swinging, then golf ball, you know, a little bit of club and those the, the temperature of those two things affecting the initial ball speed and then the impact that it has on the air density, which is going to change how far it flies through the air. And all those three things stack up together. So, I mean, it could be... Again, yeah, every player has to kind of figure this out on their own, the influence. My anecdotal thoughts is like, I've noticed probably half a club at most for myself over the years. But I think for most players, like there could be, you know, to factor all three of those, like it could be a full club difference going from like an extreme cold situation to a much warmer situation for all three of those reasons. Cause the reason I asked the ball thing is like, I've gotten a lot of emails from people, you know, people practice in their garages with these launch monitors and they're like, yeah, I've been leaving, you know, I, I practice in my garage. Like, do you think it's the ball sitting there overnight? I'm noticing lower ball speeds. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I think that's the case, which is why I want to ask you. And it sounds like that is true. Yeah, that's definitely one of the factors. Yeah, definitely. How long does a ball maintain its heat? Because something we used to do for winter league as juniors, you can imagine what it's like in Britain, right? It's freezing, the rain's coming down sideways. And we used to put our golf balls on the radiator like for maybe an hour before we go out. And then after that, we take them off and put them in our mittens and have some hand warmers in there as well. How long does that golf ball maintain its heat if it's kept? Is it just going to, the moment you bring it out and hit a couple of shots, it's gone, it's back to ambient temperature or... Oh man. Yeah, no, we haven't tested that. Sounds like you guys have to do some testing. (laughs) Yeah, come on guys. You call yourself researchers. (laughs) Yeah, we've always tried to move our, whenever we do a test, it's like, let's take it straight from the freezer onto the tee, make it as quick as possible. This could be a transition point for us, John, but the only other thing on temperature is that this may play into, you know, the humidity topic, but warmer, more humid air feels warmer, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) And so obviously we've all been or wherever, you know, it's like, 80 degrees here in Phoenix in the spring when it's 10% humidity is is totally different than 80% down in Florida. And so you feel like it's warmer. That could be part of the whole scenario where, hey, you know, I think the ball should be going further, but it's not, right? You know, it's 80 degrees, it's 90% humidity. It feels like 95. I think the ball should be going five yards further, four yards further, whatever it is, but it's not. And that's because, you know, the different humidity level in the air feels different to you. That's kind of part of the package of the whole, you know, humidity topic. And But it's kind of related to temperature because it's your, your sense of the temperature is off when the air is humid. Sure. Well, we're definitely going to get into humidity because I have some questions there. So on temperature, it seems like the influence could be anywhere from like potentially half a club to a full club, depending on uh, how warm or cold your golf ball is, how many layers or warmed up you are. So I think that's one factor that's in your control is is especially in the winter, like I've gotten hurt when I haven't done proper warmups and my body's not warm and I've, I've gone out and I've pulled neck muscles before. So I always am trying to get people to go through a proper warm up before they play. And I think it's even more important in the cold temperature. And then there's the element of the air. Like what you guys said is that, you know, going from that 40 degree to 70 degree temperature or 60 to 90, is it sounds like it's about half a club for a lot of players right there. So all those add up to maybe a full club for certain people. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the heavy air thing because that's, you know, humidity. I I live on Long Island and we get super humid 
summers like Florida. Uh, and you guys, all you guys are out in the desert, so your your humidity is non-existent. I don't think my skin would survive in your climate, to be quite honest with you. Humidity is like, you know, I often hear, oh, the air is heavier. It's not going to go as far. Let, how much influence does humidity have? Let's let's just talk about that and put that one to bed because I think there's a lot of different answers you hear on PGA Tour broadcasts and just amongst regular golfers. Yeah, so we can run the extremes in, in our ball flight model. We can go from 0% humidity to 100% humidity and take a PGA Tour average drive, and it will go one yard further. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it is not going shorter just from the air density. So going more humid decreases air density. It goes a tiny bit further, but it is one yard on a driver and a little bit less on shorter shorter shots. So it's negligible. Yeah, it's equivalent to a five-degree temperature increase. To put it in the, to, to back up into the temperature uh, comparative space. So yes, it is negligible. But wow, you know this topic has more nuance. I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know because it's connected to other things. Like we're going to talk about altitude and like air density and stuff like that. They're all connected, correct? Yeah. So we have done more research on this topic. I think it's worth talking about. So number one, there's the whole okay, humid air feels warmer, so your perception's off, right? I've certainly experienced that. Man, I played in the PGA at Bell Reve, is the hottest I've ever been, but it was only like 90 degrees in St. Louis. But I felt like it was 120, so I felt like I should be hitting my driver as far as I do back here in Phoenix, but it wasn't going that far. So my perception was off, right? So that's kind of one factor. The other factor is because you have all the players that say, hey, man, I just tend to hit it shorter when it's humid, right? Or something. If a golf ball itself has moisture on it, so if, if the actual ball itself has dew on it, has moisture on it, it's a dewy morning, maybe it's just a humid day and you have water droplets that have collected on your golf ball. This would be like you... You know, you go to your car and your windshield has a little mist or a little fog on it, right? Yeah, you're dew, su- you're dew sweeping. You're dew sweeping, okay? If the ball itself has moisture on it, we have seen that the causal factor of this is not the humid air per se. It's that the ball is wet. That golf ball will increase its drag and lose some lift in its flight and go shorter, okay? So I think... John, you and Adam can test this yourselves. Any of the listeners can test this yourselves. We've done this. You go out on a perfectly dry day and spritz your golf ball or dunk it in a bucket of water and tee it up and hit it on a perfectly dry day. Adam, this is for you to do in the in the dry desert of Vegas. You hit it, and that ball will probably fly on a driver about 15 yards shorter. The spin will increase because the frictional components are the, in the timing of that that's happening with the ball in the club face. But what we notice in our tests, and we did this on our robot, is that we said, okay, well, the spin increased by this amount. And so we would expect that ball to fly seven yards shorter because the spin went up by 500 RPMs. But we actually measured it and we measured the lift and drag of what's going on there. And it actually flew 15 yards shorter. So why was there this extra difference between we expected it to fly seven, but actually flew 15. And that's because that moisture stayed kind of with the golf ball during its flight and made it fly shorter. So that's why I said, okay, bring up this humidity topic. Well, there's the air, but then there's also if your ball is wet. And that might be the causal factor of, hey, when I play golf and it's humid. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Yeah, there's kind of moisture on the golf ball, right? So anytime there's like fog on something, 
and a little bit of something there, that ball will fly shorter. But it's not because the air per se is is more humid. That is the opposite effect. Yeah, I totally noticed that in the early morning rounds where I play. We'll have fog delays where I am because we're near the water. And there's no question. I often think about on the opening hole of my course because usually I have like 150, 160 yard shot. And we have this like really steep drop off in the front of the green. And I've noticed that anecdotally. It's like I like what you're saying is like, I know it's not the humidity, but my ball is just not going as far. Yeah. That's interesting to hear. It's, it's not directly correlated to what's going on in the air. It's the it's the moisture on the golf ball. Yeah. You know, I think a good caddy or Chris's caddy for me in a few tournaments and when it's raining, I mean, that's why it's very important to, you know, I've had the luxury of having a caddy when it's raining. Like you want them having that umbrella over the golf ball, not you, the player. Mm -hmm. That thing needs to be, you need to keep that golf ball dry is a very important factor. And so there's a combination of, you know, moisture on the ball changing the spin and anywhere below, this kind of comes to the Spinloft Mountains topic, but anywhere below about an eight iron, if you put moisture on the ball, the ball's going to spin more. I was just going to ask that question, yeah. Yeah. And then once you get to wedges, you get this reversal where like in wedges and flyers, and this depends, so this gets into a little bit more nuance of depends on the golf ball itself. And that depends on the grooves and the face friction and hydrophobicity of your club technology and things of that nature. But in general, you get moisture on the ball, it's going to increase spin from 8-iron and below and start decreasing spin on uh, kind of 9-iron through through wedges. Not if you have ping glide wedges, Marty. That's right. I'll give you guys a free <laughs> plug. I play ping glides for five years now, and I've done the test where I've sprayed the face with moisture, tested my spin before and after compared to my other wedge. I won't say the manufacturer's name. And your marketing claims and your research claims held up that the the grooves on the ping glide were better at maintaining spin with moisture on the face, which I think Andrew Rice has been pretty good on getting this info out there. It's like you just want to clean those wedge grooves no matter what's there, whether it's debris, moisture, whatever. Get it off the face before you hit it. You can't do it to the ball, obviously, but definitely noticed that in my testing and anecdotally and always an important topic to cover. Adam, you were going to ask something there, I think. No, they actually answered the question I was going to ask about spin because, I, you know, we hear that when there's water on the face, the spin reduces or when the friction decreases, the spin reduces. But that's not true in regard to the water. So there's that spin loft mountain you talked about. So it's around about an eight iron, you said, that it changes over? Yeah, I think if we want to talk general, obviously it's going to depend a little bit on someone's exact kind of spin loft and their dynamic delivery. But as a general rule, we see that reversal happening about an eight iron. That is why I never even, I had no clue that that was true. That's pretty wild. (laughs) This is why if you look at our, this is a slight tangent, but related to friction. So it's topical. If, If you look at our driver faces, you'll see that they have very aggressive brush marks on them. And some people, even if you look close, they think their driver's starting to get a crack or something. If you feel them with your thumb, they're kind of rough because of, you know, one research thing we did back in the day was, hey, we want to reduce spin on the driver. Let's mirror polish the face and it will spin less, right? And we actually got the reverse effect. It's the same thing that happens with moisture is the ball just starts sliding immediately and you get this spin increase. So we actually brush our driver faces a lot and it reduces the spin by creating a bit more friction and the timing of the ball sticking on on the face there 
What about vertical grooves, Marty? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that one that was out for a couple of years? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think John Daly was playing that one. <laughs> All right. So with humidity, humidity itself sounds to have incredibly, in terms of the actual air, has almost minimal effect on distance. But I think what Marty was describing about moisture being on the ball was incredibly helpful that that with some new information for me there. Do we want to move on to altitude? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's nothing major we left out of humidity, right? We can give a cliff notes on on the water piece just for the the full sweep. We did a full sweep of like driver, four iron, three wood, seven iron, and pitching wedge. And so just if you want that rule of thumb, if your ball's wet, pretty healthy spritzing was our test protocol. So it's about 15 yards shorter on driver, three wood, and then around five to seven yards shorter on that four iron, seven iron pitching wedge. So that would be your rules of thumb for water effect. And then obviously for humidity itself, air density, you can almost ignore it. Yeah, because there are times when you're playing, I'll play in the late afternoon, it's humid. There's no, I'm not going to get dew on the golf ball the same way I would at 6.30 or 7 in the morning. So in that instance, it would not have, it has almost a negligible effect. Right, yeah. All right, let's talk about altitude. We've got listeners from around the world playing at different altitudes. I play at sea level, so I don't have to worry about this. But, you know, we do have people like Adam in Vegas. He's been talking a lot about how he's getting back into playing golf from his simulator to real life. And, and one of the biggest challenges is adjusting for distance with altitude. So let, let's talk about that. So, yeah, I could open it up with maybe the simplest setting all these things on a scale. So Marty said that that 100% change in humidity was roughly equivalent to a five degree change in temperature and then that is roughly equivalent to a 250 foot change in altitude so five degree increase in temperature is about 250 foot increase in altitude maybe you get a rounder number it's a 20 degree change in temperature changes air density about as much as a thousand foot change in altitude so that altitude you can really get to some much bigger swings and overall effect if you're going to go from a sea level to seven thousand foot that's not doing the math amazingly quickly right now, but that's a 140 degree change in temperature. So yeah. you're never going to get as big a swing in temperature as you can possibly get in altitude. Yeah, altitude's a big deal. It changes air density a lot. This is why, you know, runways need to be a lot longer at altitude than at sea level. Like at sea level, you're flying to San Diego Airport and the runway's short and your plane lands quick, right? You fly into Denver. San Diego is terrifying. It is airport. terrifying. Like, it's terrifying. But you have what air density on your side. So you're <laughs> going to be fine here, you know? <laughs> And then you go to Denver and the runway is really long, right? It, it takes longer because there's, there's less air density there. And so, yeah, I think altitude has the, the biggest impact on like changes in carry distance and things of that nature. I think some of the fun things around altitude is that your ball, if you curve the golf ball, it will curve less. And when you hit the ball at altitude, you're going to carry it further, but it's also going to fly a lot lower. And so that might so be, I need to move to Denver is what you're telling me. Yeah, playing golf in the mountains <laughs> is, is the easiest way to hit it straighter and further. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, you hit it lower at altitude, but further. That might be not obvious. You know, it might just be, hey, I just hit it further, but the fl- ball flies a lot lower. So this changes fitting things you need to do from a club fitting standpoint, or we can use golf ball to kind of tweak things in definitely. But we've also done some fun things, noticing that that. Because the ball flies lower, it's also going to 
curve less if you hit it offline. So kind of talking about strategy and dispersion, we've done that similar type modeling with wind on dispersion at altitude. And you will hit your irons like, you know, close to 10% straighter at altitude and you'll hit your driver about like your normal driver offline with curve will be about 20 to 25% less with your driver. At what altitude? This would be, oh, good question there. This would be going like sea level to like mile high. So this is say sea level to Denver. Which is Denver's, yeah, what's a mile? 52, 52.6, okay. Yeah, and so I've always wondered it when I've played mountain golf in Colorado, the fairways, like they look very narrow or you'll be up on this elevated tee box and you're like, man, why didn't they widen the fairways here? But I still end up hitting a, a lot of the fairways. Like I don't hit it much more offline this is obvious in hindsight that at altitude it just the ball curves less you know and so your left right dispersions are tightened substantially at altitude or if you want to look at it in the reverse they're magnified <laughs> at sea level but it, it is a kind of byproduct of what happens with the air density up there is that the ball's going to curve differently i don't remember my earth science class from eighth grade all that well how many areas let's just talk about the the continental united states for starters like how many areas in the United States is this actually a factor? Is it that many or like most people like not going to see that big of it? Because I know there's obviously there's Denver, Vegas. I know you guys are a little bit, what's Phoenix, like a thousand feet they were saying on the broadcast above sea level? Yeah, I mean, the whole Phoenix area is an interesting one because we have downtown Phoenix, let's say Phoenix Country Club, where they play the Schwab Cup. And I've always noticed before I got into this, the ball goes significantly shorter there. And it's at like 800 feet. Mm -hmm. And if you go up to TPC Scottsdale, where the tournament was, it was 1500 feet. So the ball's definitely going further and curving less there. And then we have a golf community, Desert Mountain, where their highest course is at 3,200 feet. And that's all within like the Phoenix area. Yeah. And so these changes in altitude are very significant, just, you know, kind of in the Phoenix metro area in general. What percentage of distance change are you going to see per thousand foot of change in elevation? I can give some numbers on that. So for, we're going to kind of go PGA Tour average. So seven iron would go three yards further. A driver would go four yards farther. And maybe 140 yard seven iron, so maybe more amateur speed would go two yards further for a thousand foot increase in okay. elevation. So it's something to be aware of. I mean, I'm sure people who live where they live <laughs> have some understanding of what their altitude is. But you know, if, especially if you're traveling too, people travel for golf and go different places. It, it can certainly be a factor. Yeah, that seems to be much more significant than humidity, obviously. Yeah, there, there definitely are examples of PGA Tour traveling to Mexico. And they go to 7,000 foot altitude. And that's where you get, you're starting to get 30 yard further carry distances. And those guys have to loft up. There's stores of people changing golf balls to get a little bit more spin and keep the ball in the air. So if you do make that, those switches in altitude, you really got to be careful about your fitting, your ball, and just all the club distances change by quite a bit. Is that something that the Ping Tour staff will get in touch with you guys and they start asking you about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, we're not going down to that Mexico event anymore, but that was kind of the ultimate example. Okay, I'm going to a much different outside of that event. I mean, almost all the events now are at sea level. And, you know, like you said, John, they're kind of all 
most of the golf is kind of played. Yeah, I guess Florida and like California, like that swing is they're not dealing with it. Exactly. But I think even you saw, okay, Phoenix, you know, they're going from San Diego to Phoenix and then they're going back over to L.A. So it's like even going from sea level to here where it's warm dry so maybe the you know dryness affects their perceived temperature and then 1500 feet that's pretty significant to them you know also if someone was going to a <laughs> a big box store and they are being sold a driver and they're like wow i'm hitting this thing like 310 it's like they probably set you up at 10,000 feet altitude yeah yeah i've seen that in person i've looked i won't say what store it was but it happened you got to be aware of what the big levers are there so yeah so I played the Colorado Open last year, and I we did a whole analysis on this. I played a driver with about two degrees more loft, and I switched golf balls from a low flying ball to a medium high flying ball when I went up there, and it was it was perfect. Like I launched the ball high, had more spin on it, and the ball stayed in the air because I've struggled with that ball kind of quote unquote falling out of the air effect at, at higher elevations. And I went to a five wood as opposed to a long iron up there. So, you know, definitely making those type of equipment changes is something to be aware of. And then just the strategy, you'll hit it straighter at higher elevations. That's always good. Also the wind effect that is pretty significant. Oh yes. Yeah. So the wind at, let's say in Denver, for example, compared to sea level affects your golf ball 50% less. So that 10 mile an hour headwind that might affect me 20 yards is only affecting me 10 yards at altitude. Really? So that is a major factor. And and people say that, oh, the quote unquote heavy air or sea level air affecting my ball more. There's something to that at altitude. The wind does not affect your golf ball as much. And it's about, you know, 50% less if you go all the way to, you know, mile high. Well, to give you guys, I mean, you've been very generous with your time here and we could talk about ball namic briefly before I think Marty, you got to get going soon. But that is like when I went through the ball namic fitting, when it first came out, you know, it was asking for my zip code. It was calculating, you know, what altitude I play at and wind direction, stuff like that. So it's a super cool tool, but do you want to just quickly talk about how all of this gets factored in into the ball fitting that you guys have? Yeah, definitely. I think everything we've talked about today is kind of the ballnamic engine kind of drives the background of it. As you said, John, we have a zip code calculator in there that helps calculate what, you know, what we think at your zip code, your typical temperature and altitude are. We don't spit out humidities for, for reasons we've talked about today. <laughs> and so it makes the ball flight calculation specific to you, which is really cool. And that's fun to play around with. And when you go through it, you can certainly go back. Let's say if you're traveling, oh, you're, you live at a higher elevation, you got a golf trip coming up to Bandon and you're like, okay, I'm going to play at sea level. And then when I go there, playing in windy conditions is going to be important to me for that week. You can go through it a few times and change some of those things and get different ball recommendations spit out for different conditions, or you might have different care abouts. Let's say you go to Bandon versus playing golf back home. So, yeah, it's a fun tool because it allows you to get customized ball flights for your launch conditions. And it allows you to make choices based on what's important to you in your golf ball and what you need. And we keep we've we've improved it quite a bit in the last couple of months, even where we, we've added kind of recommendations to calculate whether you need a ball that goes higher off your driver or lower based on your launch conditions. So we've built in more kind of intelligence into the app and we've got a bunch of cool improvements coming to it as well. But the fun part about that calculating your recommended driver height piece 
is that takes into account your input temperature and elevation. So if you're playing at sea level, you might be a 12 launch, 2,500 spin person and the app will say, okay, you're at a great height for maximizing your distance. Your recommendation for your ball trajectory is middle of the road. But if you say I play at 5,000 feet elevation, all of a sudden it'll say, okay, you actually need a higher trajectory ball. You might want to loft up your driver a little bit too, but it will know intelligently that you need more launch, more spin to get the most out of your driver. And then I think maybe the sneaky part, the app isn't designed for this, but you can put in your launch conditions at sea level and it will tell you your estimated distance. It might say your driver is going 270. And then if you tweak those numbers to 5,000 elevation, it would tell you what our prediction is for how far your driver will go, how far your iron will go at those different elevations with your input ball speed launch and spin. So there's a, we, I don't even know if we ever thought about that, but you, yeah. can, you can see what that predicted effect of temperature and elevation is on your ball flight if you input your ball speed launch and spin for driver and seven iron. Yeah, I'll, I'll go one step further. You can actually also look at the wind impact at different elevations and temperatures as well, because we have a wind, we score how relatively good or bad golf balls are compared to each other. And we give you simulated trajectories into a 30 mile an hour headwind. And so you can go in there. It's a good way to kind of compare the differences in, in wind performance between balls. But you could change altitude and temperature and compare how golf balls do in the wind on the app as well. So, yeah, pretty fun tool. And it's all golf ball specific. Cool. Well, well, that'll be the teaser for our next episode is that I think, you know, <laughs> the golf ball is such a powerful product in the golf industry. And there's so much marketing behind it that people just choose balls for kind of haphazard reasons and your tool is you know one of the first real ways to customize the ball to your launch conditions and, and what you're looking for and, and the conditions you play in so you know people can go check it out at ballfitting.com i thought it was a pretty cool tool we'll get into golf balls maybe next time because i think we're, our, our time with you guys is running up here adam do you have any closing questions for these guys well, I've got a research topic suggestion for you. So I was reading through the internet, so it must be true. I think it was a <laughs> IF, what is it? I can't say the word IFF, love science article that said that uh, gravity is not uniform across the world. It's a new research topic. How does gravity affect <laughs> the golf ball? <laughs> you can have you on for another episode next time yeah we have simulated flights on different planets and that oh really oh so i'm not crazy in asking the question <laughs> so if we do colonize mars then you guys can hook us up with uh, how to how to choose the right well, give us how ball. far does a, a 270 yard drive travel on jupiter then oh man our colleague dr paul wood during COVID, I think he was bored or something. He did a storm. <laughs> he simulated ball flights on like all different planets. So that's on our to-do list, actually. Why don't I promise that we'll do that? And ball fitting will tweet out trajectories. It's not only the gravity, but then the, the density, you know, of the medium that's flying through. So yeah, we'll do some stuff on that. But yeah, as you go in higher elevation, you know, gravity is proportional to the distance you are from the CG of the earth squared. And so as you go up, yeah, that, that changes a little bit. We'll, we'll dig into that one, Adam. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> That's your homework for next time. Listen, we appreciate the time. I hope everyone listening to this got something out of it, some rules of thumb for wind. I think, you know, wind and temperature are the ones that, you know, you really have to th possibly think about on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis in your golf game, especially the wind. It's the biggest variable we play in, especially for people who live in windier areas, of course. 
And then, yeah, the humidity stuff in terms of the moisture on the golf ball, that was very interesting to me. So thanks again for your, your guys' time. We'll give a quick plug for Ballnamic again, where you can find it. It's ballfitting.com, correct? Yeah, ballfitting.com. We keep making improvements to it. And yeah, I think, as you said, they're John, just uh, trying to break through the confusion about what's the right ball for me. Cool. And yeah, and you guys have, you know, you can go through the library on there or even the ping site. I've read a bunch of your guys' articles, like just learning about ball flight laws and stuff like that. I, I appreciate pings. The reason why we keep having you guys on the show is you're very forthcoming with your research and it, it helps golfers shoot better scores. So thanks for everything you do. I guess we'll wrap it up there. Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. John, where can people find you? And you can find me at practical-golf.com. And thanks for everyone's support and their feedback. And we will see you next time with a new episode.